The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? For most people, Mao Zedong and Xi Jinping stand out as the two communist leaders of the People's Republic of China. But growing up, it was actually a third man by the name of Deng Xiaoping, whose legacy I felt the most. Though less than five foot tall, his impact on China's trajectory was arguably greater than Mao's and possibly will be more than Xi's. It was Deng's vision of reform and opening Gaiga Kaifang, which we've talked about in passing many times on this podcast, that started a process which transformed China from a Maoist backwater to today's economic superpower. Time magazine twice chose him as their man of the year. Yet it was also Den who gave the final go-ahead for the military clampdown of the Tiananmen Square protests and headed up Mao's anti-rightist campaigns in the 50s. So what sort of leader and politician was he? And how do we reconcile the seeming contradictions in his career between liberalism and authoritarianism? I'm joined today by James Carter, who is Professor of History at the St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. He writes a weekly column called This Week in China's History for the website SubChina, which I would highly recommend. And his latest book is Champions Day, The End of Old Shanghai. So, James, welcome to the podcast. Den's life is an incredible one, but so are so many of China's politicians and ordinary people in that first half of the 20th century. I want to focus more on his later life as paramount leader of China. But can you first set the scene for us for Den's early life? Can you talk a little bit about perhaps what kind of family he came from um, and how he got into communism? Sure. Well, he so he's born in Sichuan. And in fact, his his life and his identity as a, as a Sichuanan is really important. So the idea that he's from Sichuan becomes very closely associated with with him. So he's born in 1904. He leaves China. Very importantly, he leaves China in 1920 and goes to France. So his family life, he, he had a a fairly progressive and well-off uh, family, um, rather to call them rich or, or where you draw the line exactly is, is hard to do. But he was, he was certainly from a progressive family that was interested in sending him abroad and had the means to send him abroad. And so he did in 1920. And I think that experience in France is really important for a couple of reasons. One, to do with Deng himself. Clearly, he acquired a taste for international politics, for the not just international politics in terms of international relations, but also in terms of the experience of of the working class and the experience of the people abroad, not just in China. And I think that was really important to him. Second thing is that he obtained, uh, he developed a lot of relationships with other Chinese revolutionary leaders who were abroad as well. So Zhou Enlai would be one of those that was really important to, to him in his later life. And then the third thing that I think is really crucial is that he wasn't Mao Zedong. So Mao didn't go to France. Mao was one of the revolutionary leaders who did not go abroad. And I think that plays out in important ways later on. But nonetheless, uh, so he goes to France in 1920. Uh, he's there until 1926. 
uh, in the middle of that, he joins the Communist Party. So in 1924 is when he joins, technically didn't join the Communist Party, he joins a branch organization that's in France at the time, but he, he clearly identifies with communism at that point. Um, and then in 1926, he leaves France, goes to the Soviet Union for a short stint, uh, and then arrives back in China in 1927. So he's still a, a young man, but he's had a tremendous amount of life experience by the time he gets back to China uh, in 1927. And that's only a few years after the Chinese Communist Party is founded. So how did he find his way into the Chinese branch of that? Um, and, and was that when he met Mao as well? Sure. So he gets back to China in 1927, and he meets Mao in August of 1927. So right, right in that summer is a really important moment. So the, the Communist Party in China has had a really traumatic year in 1927. So it begins the year maybe thinking that it's on the cusp of some breakthroughs. There is some sort of spontaneous peasant revolutions in a few different rural areas. There's also reason to think that their presence in Shanghai is going to catapult them into sort of national prominence. But that all falls apart when in April of 1927, what's called the Shanghai Massacre takes place. Most of the Communist Party membership is wiped out and most of the Communist Party leadership is wiped out. So for the next couple of years, there's a struggle between the Moscow-directed, Communist International-directed, kind of orthodox Marxist strand in the Communist Party, and then the more indigenous, homegrown brand of communism, which, so kind of contradicting the notion that I said how it was so important about Deng is that he'd been abroad, Deng identifies himself from early on with Mao and with Mao's faction in the Communist Party. So he is uh, purged, purged is too strong, but he is uh, demoted, he's marginalized in the party early on because of his support from Mao. But of course, in the long term, that would become uh, a really important, uh, really important piece, and really the essential piece in his ascendancy. Um, so by 1931, he has been clearly identified with the, with the Maoist camp, um, he's playing a role in the revolution. And critically, he takes part in the Long March. So from 1934 to 1935, you have about 100,000, what's left of the communist movement. They all go on this year-long expedition to escape from the nationalists who are on the, on the brink of exterminating what's left of the party. And Deng, along with Mao and along with most of the other leaders from that period, takes part in the Long March. And that is crucial because the Long March, if you're a Long Marcher, those credentials are going to stay with you all the way through into to the very end of the 20th century. And so when Mao uh, succeeds in leading the, the foundation of the, of the People's Republic in 1949, Deng is right there as one of the, the critical leaders. Absolutely. And, and it's no wonder that Deng then rose through the ranks quite so quickly after 1949 and the communists took over China. But was it also in those early years of the PRC where Deng's differences from Mao became a bit clearer because Mao's Great Leap Forward and then the subsequent Great Famine that happened in 1959 to 1961, it was Deng and a few others like Liu Shaoqi, for example, who took on themselves to have that market reform to really build back China after the Great Famine. And he and others essentially told Mao to take a back seat and they took over the day-to-day -day running of the country. Absolutely. And this is one of the things about Deng that is really, you have a tale of two Deng. So, so which Deng Xiaoping do you want to advocate for? So the one that you just presented is very much the, the way that Deng wanted himself to be remembered when you get into his later life. So he was a pragmatist. Um, he has a, a great number of cliches which are, which are attributed to him, and I'm sure that he said them at some time, but nonetheless, they're, they may be a bit apocryphal, but the idea of whether a cat is black or white, as long as it catches mice, it's a good cat. The point being, ideology was not paramount. But at the same time, Mao uh, had designated Deng Xiaoping to oversee the anti-rightist campaign in 1957. 
um, which resulted in you know half a million people uh, losing their careers, many people losing their lives. And Deng Xiaoping had orchestrated that. So he was, I think he was a pragmatist, but he was he was never comfortable with anything that would jeopardize the power of the Communist Party. I mean, he, he was committed to the Communist Party in power. Now, that didn't mean that he had a particularly doctrinaire view of what communism would mean. But when it came, when push came to shove, he was always going to follow the path that, that he thought would guarantee that, that communism and the Communist Party would remain uh, in power. And I think that had a lot to do with his desire for stability. And I think it, frankly, had a lot to do with his sense of what was of what he had seen China go through in, in the early part of his life. And he felt that China's best path forward was going to be one under a strong central government that was run by the, the Communist Party. And let's definitely come back to that tension later on as we talk about Tiananmen Square, because decades later, that tension would again make itself known and Deng again would choose the party. But for now, despite what, what, what you're saying, Mao was still suspicious of Deng. And we talked about the first purge he's gone through. Deng was, you know, almost wore it as a badge of honour later in later life that he was purged three times. And the second two times came during the Cultural Revolution. Can you talk a little bit about what happened to him during the Cultural Revolution? And arguably, was it triggered because of Mao's worries about Deng and others? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the Cultural Revolution is a really difficult thing to understand because there's a tendency in the West to look at it and say, like, China went crazy for 10 years. And of course, a lot of very rational and understandable political processes were playing out. And they did have some remarkable and unbelievable consequences. But I think it's important that we understand the Cultural Revolution as something that is understandable. So when the Cultural Revolution begins, Deng Xiaoping is, is immediately comes under suspicion by Mao and the way to understand the Cultural Revolution at its core is it's a revolution led by Mao against the Communist Party, right? It's an intent by Mao to, to retake control from the party that he is supposedly in charge of, but actually he's been kind of promoted out of power. He's had the keys of the car taken away from him. So, so Deng Xiaoping uh, comes under suspicion. He retires from all of his official positions in 1966, kind of hoping to avoid the worst of the, of the purges that are to come. And he, and he succeeds in that for a short while, but then his family and him come under uh, intense criticism in 1968. His son is very, very tragically is struggled against by the Red Guards. He's uh, thrown out, or some people say he was pushed or, or, or fell or jumped out of a four, fourth story window and winds up quadriplegic. And then he loses all of it, Deng Xiaoping, that is, loses all of his official positions and winds up working in a factory, a, 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 fact, a tractor factory for, for four years from 1969 to 73. He then starts to come back because as the, as the chaos at the upper levels of the, of the party increase, uh, Zhou Enlai, who has always had this close relationship to Deng Xiaoping, he, he advocates for bringing him back as a means of getting things under control. And so especially after the death of Mao's chosen successor in a really controversial coup, Lin Biao is in a plane crash, it looks like he's trying to overthrow the government, people start to see that there needs to be some kind of stability. And so Deng Xiaoping comes back at that point, begins to rebuild the party infrastructure and to rebuild the connections that he thinks are going to enable him to get China back on its feet. And at that point, um, he gets purged again. Uh, and that purge comes in early, of in early 1976, because after Zhou Enlai's death, there are protests and demonstrations mourning, mourning Zhou. And there's a feeling among 
certain elements in the party led by the Gang of Four, so the Gang of Four being the most radical element of the Cultural Revolution, led in many ways by Zhang Qing, Mao, Mao Zedong's wife, and they criticize Deng Xiaoping again, seeing that Deng's praise of Zhou is a veiled criticism of Mao. And so he's, he loses his position yet again, but he comes back pretty quickly from that. And so after Mao's death in the fall of 1976, Deng Xiaoping works his, the connections that he'd laid the groundwork for there in the early 70s. He starts to exploit and develop some of those connections. And so by ni- end of 1978, he comes back into power uh, and is able to start developing what what he's best known for certainly in the west and i think best known for in china too but which is this this policy of a first stabilizing the country after the cultural revolution and then moving on to this gaigo kaifang this reform and opening era i mean what you just went through in in very brilliant overview is just such a mad period of time for anyone's life to go through. His son gets disabled because of the party that he works for. He gets purged twice. His entire family is harassed. But as you've mentioned, you know, he is still going to dedicate the future decades of his life to this party. Why did he not just throw in the hat at that point? Or why did it not disillusion him to the communist cause at that stage, do you think? I mean, what kind of determination does he have that he still wants to stick with it? You know, I, that's that's really the the central question as to what you know what motivates people to do the things that they do at some level. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, I think he was I think he was a very confident man. Uh, I think he really had the sense that he was able that he was able to move China in a direction that would I think help the Chinese nation. Because in addition to being very confident, he was also I mean he was a patriot in the sense that he really believed that. There was a system in place that if he were able to, to to get it away from the ideologues, if he were to get it away from the extremists, that he could build something that would make China more powerful uh, and stable and safe. And I think his own experience, I mean, this in some ways this falls to the level of cliche itself. But talking about Deng Xiaoping's later life, it's motivated by the experiences that he had. And those experience, especially from the middle of the, ni- the late 1950s through the Cultural Revolution, so into the 1970s, I mean, his life is just buffeted by by chaos from from all directions. And so I think that when we get, and it's coming just around the corner, but when you get to 1989, that is really what people start to see as being the, the what motivates Deng to take this, this hardline position that leads to the deaths of so many. And it really is about this fear of, of chaos, which... Is there, maybe maybe mistaken uh, in terms of the policies that he pursued, but they're certainly understandable in terms of what was motivating him to take the steps that he took. Well, actually, James, you know, maybe we should go back a little bit right now and say, you know, what were the circumstances of China when he was born in, you, you mentioned 1904, that early 20th century of China. Maybe just paint a picture of why stability then becomes such a psychological need in later life for people who were born in that time. Sure. I mean, the late Qing dynasty is really just a, a series of catastrophes that comes to be known in, it's, it's actually the nationalists who coined this phrase in the early 20th century, but the century of humiliation. And the century of humiliation begins with the first opium war in 1839 to 42, um, and doesn't end until the founding of the People's Republic in 1949. And so starting with the opium war, you have you have the first opium war, you're going to have a second opium war, you're going to have the Taiping uprising, which is which dwarfs all of those, where the Qing dynasty was very close to catastrophe or collapse. 
and is you're, you're seeing something that dwarfs the scale of the American Civil War. And you think about what the lasting repercussions of the American Civil War have been. It's many, many times greater than that. You've got peasant rebellions and religious rebellions all throughout China in the late 19th century. You have a war with France. You then late in the late in the century, you have a war with Japan, which goes badly. Then you have the Boxer Uprising, which is which is uh, I know. The more I talk about the Boxer Uprising, the more remarkable aspects to it come out, and and it really is something that's formative to modern China that I think Westerners don't fully appreciate. Then in the early 20th century, you have a war between Russia and Japan, which takes place in China. So now they're fighting in China, but the Chinese aren't able to, to keep foreign powers from, from fighting out their wars on their own territory. So by the time Deng Xiaoping is born, China has already been in this near constant state of war for half a century. And then beginning with the founding of the Republic of China, there's a revolution in 1911, but that goes sideways very, very quickly. And China falls into what is sometimes called the warlord era, where you've got China divided up into a series of states some the size of, of British counties and some the size of, of small European states. China is again divided and the people are suffering from this division for, again, decades. So by the time that Deng Xiaoping comes into adulthood, what he sees is the need for China to be stronger, the need for China to be unified, and the need for China to be free of foreign imperialism are really things that he has seen and experienced throughout his life as being fundamental to any chance that China might have to, and for the Chinese people might have, to live prosperous and, and enjoyable lives. Let, let's, let's go back to the 1970s then. Mao passes away in 1976. After some power struggles, Den manoeuvres himself back into the top position from the second purge. Um, he's clearly a canny political operator, but as we've alluded to already, it's the reforms that he brings in in that 10 years afterwards, or that he starts, I should say, in, in, that, in that decade afterwards, that are really what he's remembered for. Can you talk a little bit about those reforms, economic, social, and political? Sure. And and I think that one thing that's important to keep in mind is right there in 1978-79, you also have this vision of the two Deng Xiaopings. So the reforms, which I'll go into in just a second, the reforms are, are critical to what Deng is able to accomplish. But right at the same time is something called Democracy Wall, where you have uh, people who are criticizing the party and calling on the party to reform and open, and, and not just in economic ways, but in political ways. And Deng cracks down quite harshly on that. And Wei Jingsheng is one of the, the key dissidents that he puts away into prison. So at the very moment when he's launching these ambitious, pragmatic um, economic reforms that he's best known for, he's also cracking down on internal dissent and also and starting a war in Vietnam, going to war in Vietnam. So he's got a mixed legacy for sure. Okay, so in terms of those reforms, I mean, at, a, at the simplest level, it's enabling, enabling private property. Break, doing away with the, the commune system and the collectivization of agriculture. You're starting to see, it gets technical into what the levels are, but you start to see the ability for people to start their own businesses and for, for small local businesses. And then what he may be best known for um, internationally are these special economic zones. So these special economic zones are ways that you can, are places, and the most important one comes to be Shenzhen, which is now one of China's largest city cities right near Hong Kong. And you need to find there ways that you can have special tax codes, special pricing structures, special regulations and laws so that you can have foreign uh, direct investment, foreign investment coming into these, these special economic zones seen as a way to, to jumpstart the economy. And that reform skyrockets China's economic growth. Now, one of the caveats that is always important with that is that China's economic 
growth is spectacular by any measure throughout the 1980s uh, in 1990s with just a couple of small glitches. What people will often point to is the fact that the economic growth was coming from such a low base because of the disastrous policies in the Great Leap Forward and the disruption of the Cultural Revolution. So I think that sometimes uh, Dung is painted to be kind of a miracle worker because he's able to enable these, these economic growth rates that are really unsurpassed in human history, literally. And so I think he does deserve credit for that. But I think it also can be overstated because in many ways it was simply the just fixing some of the, the mistakes that have been made in the past get you to a base level. And that base level is so far above what had been there previously that it makes it look better going going forward. That's not to take away from Dung's achievements, but it is to contextualize them in terms of what had been going on before and what comes later. And he also had help, didn't he? There's this brilliant book by Julian Gibbert called Unlikely Partners, which charts how China consulted foreign economists in order to grow in that period, in order to reform. Deng also took some ideas from the, the era after the Great Famine and the ideas, the market ideas that were suggested and used in that sense. And some of those came back as well. Uh, exactly. I mean, so when I mentioned the Qing dynasty and the way that China, the Qing dynasty kept recovering from catastrophe and, and not collapsing, but still moving on, you see something kind of repeated in that way in the early years of the People's Republic. Because when the People's Republic goes through something as, as disastrous as the Great Leap Forward, you would expect after the death of 10, 20, 30, 40 million people, perhaps because of starvation, you'd expect that the, that society would collapse, the government would collapse. But it doesn't. And in fact, it comes back together pretty quickly. And a lot of that is done with, with Liu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping. So yeah, they were able to use many of the kinds of reforms that had been in place prior to the Cultural Revolution and kind of put them back into place after 1980. Um, so it wasn't that Deng Xiaoping came up with these novel ideas right away in 1978-79. was that he and a bunch of other, uh, a bunch of others, to some extent, put back in place policies that had been had been there before. And I think another thing that's really important to keep in mind for Deng Xiaoping is he would. He was definitely of the opinion that you needed to have more than one person running the, running the show. So he had seen the catastrophic effects of, of Mao's cult of personality. Um, he had also seen what had gone on in the Soviet Union with, with Stalin. So he, even though Deng Xiaoping was without question the paramount leader, his was the most important voice in China, what you see with Mao before him and then what happens later on down to the present with Xi Jinping Deng Xiaoping's era was actually one of the, those when you had the most consultation at the top levels of government. And I think along with the mistrust of chaos and the fear of chaos, I think the mistrust of, of single person rule was another thing that Deng Xiaoping felt was really important. Yes, and, and he ruled over these two factions, if, if you can even categorize them as just, just two, a li more liberal faction, reformist faction, and also a more conservative faction of the old guard. And was, am I right in saying that he was constantly balancing the demands and the, and the pulls and pushes of the two factions? I think so. And maybe the best way to see that is in the years between 1989 and 1992. So in 1989, he very, very famously backs the hardliners in the in the, the Beijing Spring and in the, the protests that lead to the leads to the crackdown. I mean, just to be very clear, those that crackdown could not have happened without Deng Xiaoping's support. So he I mean, so he bears responsibility for that, for what happened. And leading up to that, his two protégés, so Hu Yaobang, his, his death precipitated the protests, and Zhao Ziyang 
is the main uh, liberalizer who's arguing against the hardliners. Those were two people who were handpicked by Deng Xiaoping to lead China into the next generation. And that went really badly for him. So he backs the, the hardliners. But, However, but, but by going badly, you mean that those liberal reformers in the party made people think that they could have democracy and in some ways encourage the protesters? Yeah, I, th I think that Deng Xiaoping believed that under the leadership of Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang, that you would have economic liberalization. And I think he believed that political liberalization would have followed. I don't think it would have happened very quickly. And I don't think he advocated multi-party democracy, mm. just to be clear. But I do think that he he believed that the kinds of political reforms that, that men like Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang were associated with would, would eventually come to the surface. I mean, I, I don't, again, I don't think he was an ideologue. I think he was committed to the Communist Party in power, but I don't think he was an ideologue. However, what happened in the 1980s, the late 1980s, and there were protests in China before 1989, but the, what happened in the 1980s meant that party control was starting to slip. People who were rivals to Deng Xiaoping on the, oh, I can't say right or left, it doesn't make any sense, but on the more conservative side, they were starting to get a voice. And Deng Xiaoping, using that balancing metaphor that you talked about before, he became very concerned that if he gave too much power to the liberalizers, that it would empower, ironically, the, the hardliners because mm. of things went, because inflation would grow too quickly, stability would start to come into question, people's, you know, the iron rice bowl and the idea that people were going to have lifetime employment. As these different pieces of what made the PRC stable for many people, as those pieces started to unravel, that model was going to be too threatening. And so he, he then was willing to back the hardliners in 1989. And so then it's very tempting to say, okay, he's shown his true colors. He's, he's really just an, an autocrat and an ideologue, and he wants the Communist Party in power at all, at all costs. But then what happens in 1992, and that's when he, you mentioned his, his Southern tour. So in the 19, uh, so 1990, 1991, there's a, there's a heated debate going on in China about whether or not reform and opening was going to continue because there, were, there was one side which said the problem with 1989 is that we didn't have enough reform, we needed more reform, and it was that tension between the desire for more reform and the refusal to grant it that led to the protests and ultimately um, the, the tragic consequences of June 4th. There's another group that says the problem was that there was too much reform. And that if you didn't have as much reform, we'd be able to control things better. You'd have more stability. Things would be safer. Things would be, would be in the long run better. And that, that debate is not, is not a foregone conclusion in the 1990, 1990-1991. Um, even Jiang Zemin, who succeeds Deng Xiaoping at the top of the party, uh, he, he hasn't committed to whether reform is going to, to accelerate or continue at all. So that's when Deng Xiaoping sneaks out under... Uh, the guise of a family vacation in January of 1992, goes south. Again, he has no political, he has no formal title at this point. Um, his only real title is very famously the head of the China Bridge Association. That was his favorite card game. Um, but he goes south and he meets with officials in an informal role. But because he's Deng Xiaoping, nothing he says is informal. It's always representing Deng Xiaoping. And he meets with people in these major reform-minded cities in the South. In um, the special economic zones that he created. The, he goes to special economic zones in Shenzhen, Zhuhai, and he goes to other cities like uh, Guangzhou and then, then to Shanghai. Uh, and he meets in those places with officials and he says, we're all in on reform. We're all in on accelerating reform. And he presents the government, in effect, with a fait accompli. There's no way that Jiang, Z Jiang Zemin can, can contradict 
Deng Xiaoping once this has become, uh, it's become clear that he said this. And there's a really interesting angle to how all this gets out because the party is controlling the media. And they don't want, the last thing they want is reporting on Deng Xiaoping talking about the importance of reform and accelerating with reform. But these are back in the days when television just traveled over the airwaves. And so you had, um, you had news organizations reporting from Hong Kong. And the news organizations in Hong Kong were broadcasting in Cantonese across South China. They could be picked up. And then people living in the PRC could start to hear about what was going on. And that's how the news spread. And it's not really the point of this, this episode, but I think it is worth noting that as Hong Kong is now brought very more closely into the, the control of the, of the People's Republic of China, those opportunities for sort of outside viewpoints and, and outside vantage points onto what's going on inside the PRC are really diminished. And that's something that I think is really important. And, and the idea that we can, can, can get access to information from other sources than the ones officially controlled by the Chinese government, are, that's really important. And those, those opportunities are greatly diminished now because of the, the national security law and other goings on in Hong Kong. It's, that's deeply ironic, isn't it? That is the Hong Kong, Hong Kong's free press that allowed this tour to be reported because the mainland press didn't report it on it for months until, I mean, until they, they, they yes. their hands were forced. Um, when it comes to what Den actually wanted, do you think it was something close to the Singaporean model of a sort of soft authoritarianism where you had economic liberalism, you had people living in higher standards of living, and obviously by that point Singapore was one of the Asian tigers, instead of sort of Maoist China, but also not quite, you know, Taiwan in in its later years when it comes to multi-party democracy. Is Singapore Was Singapore something that Den was looking at? For sure. Uh, and he was pretty explicit about that. I mean, he would have loved to see China be more like Singapore. He was also aware that the, the, the differences of scale are just so vast as to be absurd. So I don't think he was, I don't think he had quite figured out how to get from point A to point B, um, with point B being Singapore. He would love, he would have loved to see that the model you just described uh, as one in the People's Republic of China, but also it was absurd to, to even hope for that. So I think that, I mean, to, to fall back into dung cliches, and he talked about crossing the stream by feeling for stones, the idea that you don't necessarily have the whole plan worked out, but you go one step at a time and you figure it out. I do think that was the that was Dung's, uh, Dung's idea. The idea, though, is itself subject to interpretation, because some people would say, ah, what we need is more practicality and less ideology, because look at, you know, Deng Xiaoping said, if we cross the stone by feeling for streams and uh, we cross the stream by feeling for stones, we'll be able to get there um, one way or another without worrying about all these big ideological principles. But I think you can also point out and say, yes, but crossing the stream in that manner led to um, what happened in 1989. And it led to what comes to be the, the death of really Chinese political participation. Now, that doesn't get realized until Xi Jinping's control. But in the 1980s and 1990s are, are I think, coming in for a lot of new understanding. Mm. And I think that people who were in China during that time see it now as a very free and very open period. Although at the time, people didn't didn't really see it that way. Well, one last question on 1989, because this is something on a, on a personal level that I find incredibly fascinating, which is the relationship Deng had with his protege, Zhao Ziyang. So Hu Yaban, at this point, his first protege has had passed away. As you say, that's what triggers the protest. But Zhao Ziyang is there. He's the he's a general secretary of the party. He advocates for negotiating with the students. And there's that incredible video footage of him going on to Tiananmen Square and talking to the students. In fact, we can hear a bit of it here. 
And here Zhao Ziyang is apologizing, saying, students, we have come too late. I'm very sorry. He says to them that you are still very young and we are old and useless. But despite this sort of rhetoric, on June 4th, it was tanks, not politicians, that went on to Tiananmen Square. And the reason for that is, well, it's because that it's because Deng Xiaoping essentially sold out Zhao Ziyang, didn't he? I mean, it was uh, he sacrificed his protege on the Politburo. He sided with the conservatives and Zhao Ziyang spent the rest of his life in house arrest, dying in 2005, decades later. That's the dark side of practicality. I mean, so we, it's, we want to say that Deng's practicality was an advantage. Um, his pragmatism, I guess is a better word, that his pragmatism was an advantage because it enabled him to not adhere to an ideological line and enabled China to move forward and develop. But pragmatism also is kind of by definition, not principled. Mm. Um, and so I think that I believe... I, don't, I can't give you evidence for this very much, except for kind of a holistic view of the man. I believe that Deng Xiaoping would have preferred a model that was closer to what Zhao Ziyang would have represented. But in the end, he determined that he couldn't have everything that he wanted, but what he needed was to have stability and a strong communist party in power. So yeah, he, he was willing to sacrifice his protege. Absolutely. James, how do you evaluate Den's overall legacy. Um, And the reason I wanted to do this podcast was because growing up in the 90s, you know, the communist leader that had was mentioned to me the most was Deng Xiaoping by my parents, by their contemporaries, because they lived through and they were living through reform and opening. But at the end of the day, he was still an authoritarian, he was still a communist, and we talked so much about his contradictions. It was funny, um, when he was evaluating Mao's legacy, Den said that Mao was 70% right and 30% wrong. How would you evaluate Den's legacy in that way? Uh, I, should, I should have seen that question coming. Um, <laughs> that's really funny. How, could, how can we... we all, I mean, it's a, ridiculous stati- it's a ridiculous statistical exercise that Deng did for Mao in any case, but I'm going to yes. put that to you now. <laughs> it's, it's also really interesting when you try to track down that particular quotation about the 70% right, 30% wrong, it's really challenging to actually track it down. How official it is, is, is questionable. So Deng Xiaoping, I, I take the cop out of, of saying kind of the same. I mean, in the same way that Mao Zedong people would say, would have said for a time, I'm going to retract a little bit of this. For a time, what people said about Mao Zedong was that everything he did up until the Great Leap Forward was really good and important. And then after that, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution showed that they were so disastrous that they undermined a lot of what he had done before. But nonetheless, what he did before was really important. I think recent uh, scholarship has shown that um, what went on with land reform and what happened in the early years of the, of the People's Republic were a lot less uh, a lot less admirable than maybe some people had argued before. Although clearly Mao plays a critical role in leading the revolution. And, and so that's that, that can't be taken away from him. For Deng, I want to say something very similar. I mean, I think, but, but neither one is quite as extreme. So I think that, that Deng is responsible for getting China back on the right track after the Cultural Revolution. And that's no mean feat. I mean, that's really, really important. And if you look at, at how prominent China is in the 1980s, well, growing through the 1980s into the 1990s and the 2000s, that wouldn't have happened without, without Deng Xiaoping something different would have happened with that Deng Xiaoping. And it's unreasonable to think that China would not have grown economically under a different path. But I think Deng Xiaoping gets credit, deserves to get credit for a lot of that. 
The question then would be, what happens after 1989? And certainly he bears responsibility for what happened in 1989. And just to be clear, the scale of 1989 is much less than the scale of the Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution. So I think there, you can't equate those two things. What I see is really worrisome, though, is what happens in the 1990s as you have what's sometimes called this grim bargain. And the grim bargain is the notion that if the Chinese people concede the right to rule to the Communist Party, that the Communist Party will give the people the, the right to kind of pursue their own economic fortunes as they, as they wish. And I think one of the consequences of that is it leads to kind of a hollowing out of the political space in the 1990s that I think contributes indirectly to this new rise of authoritarianism that you've seen under, under Xi Jinping. It's too distant and there's too many variables and intervening factors to draw a direct line from one to the other. But I do think that the, sorry, the weakening of political discourse after 1989, I do think contributes to this rise of authoritarianism under Xi Jinping. Well, let's talk about Xi Jinping to wrap up then, because in many ways, Xi is a very different leader to Deng Xiaoping. In many ways, they're very similar as well. Both are communists and nationalists. But when it comes to Den's legacies, his many his many phrases that he really liked to throw out left, right, and center. One of them was "Taguan Yanghui," hydro capability, and "Bide your time" is how it's roughly been translated, which refers to foreign policy and saying, you know, don't be too assertive on a global stage. China needs to get stronger before you do anything ridiculous. And then also, you've mentioned collective leadership at the top upper echelons of the Communist Party, where not one person has full control. Many aspects of that, and that those are just two examples, seem to have been overturned by Xi. And if Dan were alive today, there's another ridiculous mental exercise for you here, James. If Dan were alive today, would he think, are you undoing my work? Or would he think, actually, this is what China needs right at this moment? I think that, I do not think Deng Xiaoping would be pleased with the direction things have gone, for just the reasons that you said. Like, I do think that he believed in collective leadership to a point. And I do think that he believed in this, this notion of, of biding your time and, and sort of concealing, concealing your, your, your greatness until such a point, such a time when it didn't, uh, you didn't have to conceal it anymore. I guess my evidence for that would be that you've really seen a dismantling of Deng Xiaoping, of Deng Xiaoping's legacy by, by Xi Jinping. And so the idea that as Xi is elevating himself and making himself into, you know, the most powerful person in China since Mao Zedong, part of that means that as he draws a trajectory from Mao to himself, that Xi Jinping is is by necessity going to diminish the importance of Deng Xiaoping. And so I think that using that as a as an as a piece of evidence, I think that Deng Xiaoping would be very concerned about that. I think he would be very concerned about both the advent of, of ideology, like the the importance of ideology, the importance of now a single party a single leader at the top of the party and, and making all these decisions, the doing away with term limits, which was something that, that under Deng's direction they were mm. implemented. So all these things suggest to me that, that Xi Jinping was, is not the kind of leader that Deng Xiaoping would have felt China needs. And James, that's particularly interesting because Xi Jinping's father, Xi Zhongxun, was a contemporary of Deng's and a reformer with Deng. He was pivotal in the creation of these special economic zones. Uh, yes. And, and for that reason, a lot of people felt that uh, when Xi Jinping came to power, many people felt that, oh, he's 
he's consolidating power so that he can implement reforms. That's turned out not to be the case. But, but I do think it's really noteworthy that when Deng Xiaoping is purged for that third time, he is really protected and cultivated by, by Xi Jinping's father. Uh, and so the, the, the legacy there in South China and Southern China, this connection to the present, all these suggested that she might be a reformer a la Deng Xiaoping, but it's turned out to be just the opposite. Professor James Carter, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, do leave us a review. And we've mentioned quite a few different themes in this episode, and Chinese Whispers is getting to the stage now where we can start to cross-reference to some of our other things. We're starting on the journey of painting a more complete picture of modern China. And a few of the episodes that you might like to listen to next, if you haven't already, that are relevant to this episode are one episode that I did with Professor Rana Mitter from Oxford University about the May 4th movement in 1919, which is full of those bright young things, those young revolutionaries born in the early 20th century in China, like Deng Xiaoping, like Mao Zedong, uh, who wanted to change China and free it from foreign imperialists. And that was a fascinating episode all about that original Tiananmen Square protest. You might also like to check out my episode with Steve Tang, where we talk about Hong Kong's development. And in there, Steve talks about his first time setting foot in Shenzhen, that backwater which is now, because of its designation as a special economic zone, a rival to Silicon Valley. So that's also another one you might like to check out, and I'll link to both in the description, as well as the link to Zhao Ziyang's incredible Tiananmen Square speech for Chinese-speaking listeners. Thanks for listening, and join us again for our next episode.